Exodus 17, starting in verse 8. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did. As Moses told him and fought with Amalek. Well, Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. Whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary. So they took a stone, put it under him, and he sat on it. While Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book. Recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar, called the name of it, The Lord is My Banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Let's ask God's blessing upon His word. Father in heaven, we are such feeble creatures, and we are slow-witted. We thank you that the disciples oftentimes were quite slow themselves, for they give us encouragement in our own walk, for we are often very similar. We ask that you would open our eyes, our hearts, give us faith, for Christ's sake. Amen. I love cats. I just lost half the room, maybe more. I might have, I'm not sure. Might sure, yeah, there's the booze I was explaining. I, all joking aside, I grew up with a cat. My, my sister and I had a cat. Uh, it was it's the 80s. It was named Jambox, which was the perfect name for a cat. Uh, to give you an idea as to what type of cat this was, it was named Jambox because it purred very loudly, so we carried it on our shoulder, slung over our shoulder while it was purring like a Jambox, thus I said the 80s. And it was an awesome cat. I mean, it hunted. It hunted birds. And it hunted dogs. Yeah, it was a legit cat. The cat weighed 16 pounds plus, and it was not fat. It was huge. It was, I mean, it was an awesome cat. Loved to play games. We, we played with it all the time. It was great. Slept in my bed for a decade. It was awesome. He did, however, have one game that I did not enjoy. Uh, and now as I've gotten older, I think I've kind of finally come to realize I don't think it was a game for the cat. The game was this. It would wait until you least expected it. And it would attack you from somewhere. It could be 
around the bottom of the bed. It could be on top of the desk. It maybe even would get on top of the shelves. It, it, you never knew. It was like the uh, old Monty Python gag of the, you know, no one expects the cat to attack. You would just walk into a room and it, would, and it was fully clawed, fully toothed, the whole bit. And so you'd walk in, have no idea, and then just, you know, on you on the back. Ah, what is that? What are you doing? You know, I just fed you. Why are you being so hateful? There's a sense in which that kind of same emotional response, my sister and I would have all the time from our ridiculous cat, there's a little bit of that that's coming up in the text. Ah, what are you doing? Why are you being so hateful? I have no idea what's even happening. That's what picks up here in the middle of Exodus chapter 17. We've been reading uh, Exodus all the way through, and it's been telling us the story of Israel and Amalek. Oh, wait, no, it hasn't. No, it's been telling us the story of Israel and Egypt. We haven't seen Amalek at all. We suddenly have a new character introduced in the story, and the new character is introduced by walking up and punching Israel in the back of the head, or at least attempting to. It's a shocking story. Israel's been brought out of Egypt. The Lord has absolutely destroyed Egypt. There's not much left. They're a husk of an empire. He's taken them out into the boonies, at which point he's given them amazing, miraculous provision with meat and with water and with bread and more water. And he's provided for them every step of the way. They have a pillar of fire and cloud that leads them. It is a miraculous story. The Lord has been ever present. He's been providing. He's been protecting. God is at work. It's a story of victory. It's a story of, well, a little bit of grumbling, but a a joy and delight if they would just pay attention. Yet here in verse 8, a new character kind of arrives on the scene. And again, if you're kind of paying attention to how the literature itself is written, it would be rather shocking. I love how Moses tells it. And then Amalek came and fought with Israel. Wait a minute, what happened? Who did what now? And again, most of us not being Jews in here, and uh, some of us not being Old Testament scholars, uh, would not just kind of immediately go, oh, Amalek, I know exactly who that is. Oh, yes, I I remember Amalek. Amalek is descendant of Esau, grandson, I believe. They're family. Distant family, but family nonetheless to the Israelites. Someone that you would hope... When you got back to the land, you'd be able to play nicely with. It's like maybe not per se the cat jumping out and beating you, but maybe the estranged brother that you walk, you know, you got food, you got the fridge, you're walking around to go sit down next to the television and the brother jumps out from behind the wall and proceeds to try to beat you to oblivion. We do find out a little bit more of the story, though, as we read the larger context of Scripture and the curses that are explained here. And we actually find out it's more than just Amalek came and fought with Israel. Amalek actually hunted Israel. Amalek actually started picking off the weak and wounded and weary of Israel. 
You see, what they did is they went around the back of Israel, the rear guard of Israel, and uh, when Israel wasn't paying attention, they would come and they would raid and they would kill and capture and steal from Israel. They didn't start up front where, ah, you know, the leaders are, the pillar of fire or whatever. They started with the weakness. They preyed upon the needy. They preyed upon the families who couldn't travel quite as quickly as everybody else. Maybe they had a newborn. Maybe they had an an aging great-grandmother or something that was not able to travel quite as rapidly. Maybe they just had a tough time keeping up for whatever reason. Maybe, Maybe they had the flu go through their family. Oh, Amalek shows up and picks them off. And you think, man, this is is shocking, really. I mean, Israel's at this kind of great moment of victory. They've been brought out into the wilderness, and the Lord's getting ready to meet with them. They're getting ready to receive the law at Mount Sinai. They're actually on the foothills of Sinai itself. They think Rephidim's probably kind of right right down from Sinai itself. And then surprise attack. And it would be shocking. It would be surprising. It would be except for the fact that we are New Testament Christians and we've begun to kind of already formulate this truth in our mind that is so unbelievably important. That for the people of God, conflict is the trajectory this side of heaven. This side of heaven, the daily ins and outs of life is going to be conflict. It's difficulty, trial, it's challenge, it's struggle, it is upsetness. That is the trajectory of this life. Here at their great moment of victory, at their great moment of peace, as they're getting ready to meet the Lord himself, suddenly enemies show up. And it's going to be the pattern. If you just continue to flip through the Bible, you would get that same story over and over again. In fact, actually, there's one that reminds us of how it actually the whole thing begins, doesn't it? God makes Adam and Eve makes all of the creatures, everything's good, and suddenly Eve is attacked. I mean, again, if you're reading without kind of knowing the rest of the book, Genesis 3 is a surprise, isn't it? I mean, I thought, I thought everything was good. I thought God was in control. I thought all of his people were victorious, and suddenly here's the devil tempting Eve, and then, wow, she doesn't do very well, and Adam does even worse. And then a couple of verses later, God's cursed them. He's cursed the entire world. He's kicked them out of the garden. It should be no surprise That's the trajectory of our lives. Conflict, difficulty, and challenge. There's a number of reasons for this. As I was kind of thinking about this week, just thinking through, like, why on earth? I mean, honestly, it makes no sense. If we have the geography the way that we think it is, and we've got the path of the Exodus correct, which I think we probably have a pretty good idea, this attack is a bit of a surprise because it's way out of the Amalekites' territory. It's hundreds of miles south from where they would be. 
You think that's kind of a, it's a surprise, it's a shock. It's in fact actually one of the reasons why some commentators are like, well, obviously they couldn't have been that far south because there's no way the Amalekites would have gone that far. And I would say that's, that's actually not true because you think about it, there's a lot of reasons why the Amalekites would go after Israel. First and foremost, you remember how God arranged for Israel to leave Egypt. You remember how it happened? He said, get all your stuff ready, pack up your things, you're getting ready to go, and oh, by the way, I'm going to make your neighbors give you everything they own. And so all of the wealth of Egypt is immediately given to the people of Israel. So as they're taken out of the land of Egypt, they're taken out with immense wealth. Tremendous riches. All kinds of plunder. And you can see the Amalekites perhaps going, (laughs) they've been in slavery for 400 years. They can't be that strong of a nation. I mean, they don't even have weapons yet. I mean, you think the Egyptians were like, here, let us give you all of our weapons too. No. No, in fact, actually, that's part of what you're going to see here with (laughs) Joshua trying to get an army up to fight. uh, We literally have no soldiers. No one's been trained to do this. We don't have any weapons. No one's been trained to do this. We don't have anything to fight. We're in deep, deep trouble. You could see how the Amalekites might go, hmm, the resources of God's people. We're lured in by the resources of God's people. We want to have what God has given them, but we don't want to be a part of them. As I was thinking about it, I was like, man, that, that's a reality that's absolutely true today, isn't it? I mean, that, that is in so many ways a great description of what life inside the church is like. Where people want the realities, the blessings, the joys of being a part of God's people, but without actually being a child of God or being in the church. Say, I want joy or peace, stability or friendships or family. I want the blessing of God. I want the smile of God, the favor of God, but I just can't bother to be in the church or part of the church. You think about it also, too, how it would be very easy for the Amalekites to have this just quiet resentment inside them. Because here, as they've come out of Egypt, the Israelites have come out of Egypt, it's abundantly clear that God is on Israel's side, but not theirs. That Yahweh, the God of the Bible, the God of the Old Testament, the God of the New Testament is on the side of Israel, but he's not on the side of the Amalekites. And to have a very quiet, deep-seated resentment toward those that do have God's favor. Jesus talks about this. He says, look, they're going to hate you because they hate me. And if they understand that you're connected to me, they're going to hate you. The closer your proximity to me, the more that you get to see this. Again, I've told you stories. I love this one of the great joys of, if you have a really dark sense of humor, which I do. It's one of the great joys of being a minister. Is watching people's response when you say, oh yeah, I'm a preacher. That's fantastic. Suddenly they have yard work to do. 
Suddenly they have chores that they got to do, and they're excited about doing those chores because it means they don't have to talk to you anymore. It's hysterical to watch. Because people understand. I mean, it's how Jesus introduces uh, his description of, of what the church is going to look like. You remember how it happens even at the Beatitudes? All of these things kind of build to the end. What's going to happen? They will despise you because of me. It will be hatred for my name's sake. You will be the aroma of Christ to the nations, and some will be drawn to that, but for others it will be the aroma of death, and they will hate you. You think, well, that's, I mean, that's good and normal. I understand this, Michael. We've talked about this a number of times. I mean, I've kind of read my Bible. I, I understand this. I get it. And I would say, I'm glad. That's good. You should get this. It's a, a common idea, but it's one that I think a lot of times emotionally we kind of forget. And I say it this way, we kind of forget it because so often we're surprised when the cat attacks. For my sister and I, it should have been abundantly obvious, the cat's going to try to kill you. Just know that in advance. Particularly if you go on vacation, right when you come back, the first person it finds is going to get bit. Just know that. Plan for it. Emotionally prepare. Right? We would rock, paper, scissors to see who had to go which way to find the cat. <laughs> Somebody was getting bit. But it is intriguing how often we find Christians that are longing for the peace of heaven and trying to accomplish it in the present. Trying to barter with the Amalekites, trying to play nice with the Amalekites, trying to treaty with the Amalekites, trying to reason with the Amalekites and forgetting that this life, this life is a life of warfare. We don't get shalom in its entirety. We don't get peace in its entirety until the life to come. Until we pass into glory. Or King Jesus comes back. I hope that happens today. This introduction of the new character of the enemy, it's really the old enemy. And it's the story of the entire Bible is that while God's children are growing and being blessed by God, someone comes to fight. The world, the devil, sometimes their own flesh. They goof it up from the inside. We are creatures of combat. And again, I think in many ways, the American church, we've, we've kind of, in so many ways, kind of lost that idea. We've forgotten that we are, we're, we're intentionally designed to be soldiers for the cross. We've in some ways kind of neutered the church to try to make us into so nice of people. We forget we're supposed to be really nice soldiers, equipped to fight. Next to the kind of second movement to the passage here, we, we see that God introduces the enemy. He introduces the problem that the Amalekites are sneaking up from behind Israel. They're picking off the uh, little families and eventually, excuse me, eventually they get enough of a, a, a boldness, a confidence to amass their entire army and Israel kind of sees that, oh no, it's now going to be war. Which again, if you think about it in the passage, is not really that big of a deal, I guess, except for the fact that, again, they have no soldiers and they have no weapons. And the last time I checked, warfare without weapons and without soldiers usually doesn't go well. 
certainly against a force that is well-armed and well-trained. And I love how Moses gathers the leaders together and he explains what God's going to do. He says, look, Joshua, just go fight. You don't need to worry about anything else. Joshua, you just go fight. Get an army together. You have about eight hours. Get an army together and be ready to fight. And can you imagine Joshua getting his buddies together, the, you know, the half dozen, dozen guys that he knows the best? And he's like, guys, you're not going to believe what we have to do. I mean, I know this is going to be crazy, but like, I need you to go find like a thousand soldiers and whatever they can use to fight with. Sticks, that's great. Stones, that's great. Maybe, maybe some of them had a sickle from where they had to, you know, wheat something. I don't know. Fishing hooks. I don't, I don't know. Anything. Just something. We're going to have to fight. You get a thousand, you get a thousand, you get a... Can you imagine that? The panic that was set in. Ah! Again, the conversation that had been had with those wives afterwards. Can you believe what he told me to do today? So they go out to fight the next day. And again, this warfare would not have been one that I think, humanly speaking, they would have been tempted to have any confidence in. Humanly speaking. This is all of the math would say, this is not going to last very long, and Israel's done. This is, Michael's trying to play basketball against LeBron James. It's going to be messy. It's not going to happen. I'm just, I'm done. I'm going to get dunked on. It's going to be easy. It's going to be over. And yet, and yet, verse 11 When Moses holds up his hand with the staff of God in it, the Lord gives victory to Israel. But again, you can imagine at this point, Moses is over 80 years old. When was the last time you tried to do any sort of work over your head? Maybe you had to work on the ceiling. Maybe you had to paint something up high. How long does it take before your arm is like, and I'm out? I think about that at 80. At 80. Amazing that, again, to think that Moses understands that this is the mechanism that God's giving him victory. Because I'm going to tell you right now, me at 80, it's probably not very long that staff's going to be up in the air and the hands are going to be in the air. But instead, God gives them victory again, displaying that he is the one who fights. And we get to see a couple of different ways that this is explained. Again, it's a theme that's been captured all throughout the book of Exodus already, that God fights for his saints. But here, it's intriguing because God introduces just a new aspect of creativity. I mean, he's already had the sea open up and kill them. That's pretty cool. Not going to lie. I mean, in terms of military tactics, having the ocean eat them is pretty neat. Having the angel of death go through and kill their firstborn. Again, you all know, boils. I'm just, I'm out with that one. That would, I would have been finished. Bugs and Logan, all kinds of neat things. Here, just a new creative way that God displays his victory. It's amazing to think about it. God is an artist. And the way that he's using his art here is the way he's, he's constructing victory for his people. Every story, it's the Lord winning over his enemies, but it's in a new and just more intriguing and diverse and just complicated and delightful way. Here, I'm going to take my people who have no idea what they're doing, and I'm going to send them out to fight, and they're going to have no idea what they're doing, and they think they're all going to die, and then I'm going to have Moses raise his arm, and then we're going to win. And that's the mechanism. Who would have thunk? 
I mean, totally different idea. Totally different kind of creative way for God to showcase his victory. It also is uh, explained a little bit later as the Lord uh, takes this vow, verse 14, write this as a memorial in the book, not a book, uh, in the book, record this in the scriptures. I'm going to destroy the Amalekites. They're done. And has God done that? Well, last I checked, you can't find the Amalekites. They don't exist anymore because they've been destroyed. Neatly, uh, Moses builds an altar after the victory and and highlights this connection here uh, as he uh, praises the Lord and says, The Lord is my banner. The Lord is my banner. And this was an idea that was picked up by evangelical churches all throughout the 80s and into the, I guess, early 90s where we love to kind of decorate our, our buildings and have these banners hanging and misunderstanding a little bit of what it means that the Lord is our banner. Remember that they didn't have sophisticated walkie-talkies or whatever for when it came time to do battle. Like, you had to have a mechanism whereby people could see where to go. All right, your soldiers are supposed to go over there, your soldiers are supposed to go over there, and your soldiers are supposed to go over there. Well, as the battlefield changes, maybe we need his soldiers to come back this way. And so you would use a banner to communicate You would use a banner as a rallying point. Your banner was the mechanism to instruct the people how to fight. And it's interesting that what he's highlighting here is he's saying, the Lord is my victory. But it's also the Lord is the one who instructs me how to fight. He's my rallying point. He's my security. He's my communication for the fight that I am in. God is my victory. In Vietnam language, this would have been, I guess, World War II as well, the guy who carried the radio pack on his back, you know, with the big long antenna that came and clipped down on the shoulder. And, it, you know, he was the guy who had to turn around so that the boss could get on the walkie-talkie and communicate. Is that. That's what he's communicating. The Lord is the one who is not only accomplishing victory on the battlefield, but he is the one who's uniting us, who's communicating. He is our connection, a rallying point. And in fact, actually, that's our kind of third movement thing to look at here is this is the new and interesting part about Israel's defeat over the Amalekites. Thus far in Exodus, the Lord has been saying, look, you're going to be in conflict and I'm going to win. You're going to be in conflict and I'm going to win. You're going to be in conflict and I'm going to win. In fact, actually, I've preached that sermon more than twice so far. But here you have something new. You're going to be in conflict, and the Lord's going to win. But he's going to use you as part of that mechanism. The Lord's going to use you as part of that victory being accomplished. The Lord is going to use you to do this thing. In fact, actually, we haven't seen this yet. I mean, if you kind of flip backward, the water from the rock, the bitter water made good, the you know, bread from heaven, the crossing, the red, all of this has been the Lord acting directly or directly through Moses as man. But this time is where we begin to see the new way, and, and I'm going to be honest, the primary way that the Lord interacts and creates victory in creation, it's that it's taking his victory and applying it through his people. 
It's taking his victory and then using his church to take that victory and accomplish it. We're the mechanism whereby he accomplishes it, whereby he implements. And you think about this, it makes sense in light of Easter. Who wins over the grave in Easter? Well, Jesus did. Obviously, he did. He lived, he died, and really died, and was in the grave and stayed in the grave for a season, not that long, raised himself from the dead and has victory over the grave. But it's intriguing that what does he do shortly after that? Well, he sticks around for a little while, and then he's like, hey, guys, you know what? It's actually better than I'm out. It's better that I return to heaven. It's better that I'm gone. And I'm thinking, eh, the Lord of life, pretty sure it's not better that you leave. But, you know, you're God and I'm not, so you know better than I do. But I would think having the Lord of life in my presence would always be the best solution. But God in his infinite wisdom knows it's better that the Lord Jesus returns to heaven. Why? So that the church will be the arena wherein that resurrection victory is displayed. You may not have caught it. That's why we read Matthew 28. I tricked you. I set you up for it. Resurrection takes place. Hey, look, Jesus isn't here. The angels say he's gone. He's not in the tomb. His enemies double down. And how does the book end? Therefore, one verb, make disciples. Subordinate verbs, go, teaching, baptizing. That's how the, the whole book of Matthew ends, right after the resurrection. It's amazing, just done. You make disciples. That resurrection victory that Christ has accomplished, that he has achieved, that he has shared with you, you go use it. Put it into practice. Put it into play. It's the same thing here where we have God declaring victory over his enemies, but how is it in this passage that he accomplishes victory? Well, he does it through an army that actually goes out to fight, even though they have no idea what they're doing. And he does it through men who step up and assist Moses because Moses is too weak to accomplish the task. You realize in this case, the man of God's too weak. He can't do it. He can't stand there for however many hours it takes for an army to kill another one. He's got, they, they bring him a chair, they sit him down, and then they kind of stand there and probably pop, prop his arms on, the, you know, on their shoulders so he can just kind of be, you know, at what point did he kind of like, guys, can I take a nap? Just hold my arms really tight. <laughs> This is the first great time we see a victory of Israel that includes all of the people of God as part of that victory. And it's the mechanism that will be the primary New Testament mechanism. It's the primary mechanism today. Where the victory that Jesus has accomplished is worked out in creation first and foremost through you. I mean, just, we're going to be really kind of crass about it. How many people can I even possibly share the gospel with in a week? If you all just did one a week in this room, think how many more just numerically that is. That's just one if everybody did it. 
how much y'all care for each other. I mean, and I'm just using myself as an example. I'm very small, limited amount of hours in the day that I get to use. And just sheer math, 100 of you, one of me. Hey, let's put all the elders and deacons in on that. That gives us what? Nine? Something like that? Nine of us? Ten of us? Compared to 90 of you? You see, the math is much better that the Lord's designed this thing to be you that he's using. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. How is that accomplished? It's in Christ, Christ's power, working out through the Spirit in the people of God. You get to see this with kind of how we express the mission of this church, with the gathering and perfecting of the saints through the word, sacraments, prayer, and fellowship. It's you that the Lord is using. And I give you just a very quick exhortation connected to this, a very quick challenge. And it is this. Please do not squander the warfare that you have been given. Don't squander it. I mean, you think about how this would read so differently if all of the men that went out to fight with the Amalekites were like, well, the Lord designed me to have peace all of the time. I was not going to do anything. I'm out. And suddenly this story would go from a, hey, look, God displayed victory through his saints to a God still displayed victory, but then punished his saints for being disobedient. Don't squander the life that the Lord has given you, the neighbors that the Lord has given you, the challenges, the difficult people that are in your lives that God has given you. Use it as an opportunity for the glory of God, the victory of Christ and the working of the Spirit in and through His church. Use it as chance to display the Lord of life so that people might see and be drawn to his church. To understand there's something different in here. For this is where the Lord resides, not inside this building, thankfully, but within you, the people of God. The challenges will come. Jesus will win. May it be that we are active participants in that victory. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We do confess that we are uh, both lazy and cowards. And we confess that those are evil things for us to be lazy in the duties that you have called us to and cowards for the fight at hand. Lord, might we fight in holy ways, with holy hands, as your holy people. For you are a holy God. O oh Lord, bless us in your name's sake, we pray. For, for your name's sake, in Christ we pray. Amen. Amen.